um, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't have time for shower. Sorry. You've not showered. I've, I've not showered. Although given it's the, quarter to ten, Hugh. Given the delay that well, we're supposed to be starting at nine fifteen at the beh- the best of Rory Smith. No, no, no. I, I never said nine fifteen. I said just before ten. Oh right, okay. Well, I was ready for nine fifteen clearly, well, which meant that I didn't have time to. Take... So, so when I said when I said I can do anywhere from nine fifteen onwards, I took that as an the, open the response. Yeah. The response to oh no, it doesn't need to be that early. Might have might have been useful. I didn't want to confuse matters. You said you should do nine fifteen onwards. I could have responded, but I was busy being broadcast to the nation on the iPlayer. I apologise profusely for my entire well, partly dodge inflicted and partly Zoom inflicted delay. Well, here's the thing, because I, I um, as they do with Boris Johnson in the Conservative Party, I very much price that in to my morning mm, mm. by by essentially getting my son ready to go to, to nursery, dealing with that, getting myself ready in everywhere apart from hygiene-based yeah, um, so that I could be on the Zoom for 9.15. So. I mean, let, let's, not, let's not compare notes of what we've all done this morning, Hugh. Just, well, it's, you know, it's, I'm it's just not, saying it, that I, I priced it in for a 9.15 start. You added it on from 9.15. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I, I would have been ready for 9.30 had my Zoom not played up. That's and what I also I, that's just, what I would say, I just want to sort of lift the curtain a little bit for people in that I've known Hugh long enough to know that him not having had a shower at quarter to ten in the morning is nothing to do with having a son. <laughs> it certainly predates around about this time last year. This is Seppi's Many displaying great fortitude and discipline to provide a second show in as many weeks. Well done us. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, MOTD, wrapped with a goal of the season contender. And Rory Smith, MNC, wrapped with an iPlayer live show, already plugged once by Rory mm. on the preamble. Oh, yes, live shows. Yeah. SPM Live. Yes, SPM Live, broadcast to nobody apart from the whole world, eventually, I would imagine, is on Wednesday the 20th of July. That's Wednesday the 20th of July. We have an SBM live show in London. It is part of the Goals Allowed Podcast Festival. Now, it's going to be at 21 Soho, which I'm told by my brother-in-law, Paul, actually featured on television recently uh, on the final of the BBC's Interior Design Master Programme. Now, I don't know where the um, the stress should be on that. Is that uh, the BBC's Interior Design Master Programme or the BBC's Interior Design Master Programme or the BBC's Interior Design Master Programme? Uh, basically, the final challenge in that show was to do up 21 Soho. Because Oh, I saw that. Oh, right. So you did. So you know yeah, that yeah. it's now fitting for, for a yeah. people who want to come and watch it. Watch it, was, it was very stressful to pe- for the people involved. Let me tell you, there were, there were friends made, friendships lost, relationships made, relationships broken, tears, heart swelling uh, drama. It was, it was just fantastic television. All right. So well, you I think watch it. <laughs> I, I hope you watched uh, the, a bit of it. I hope the National Football Museum are paying attention. We expect a redecoration before our next appearance there. <laughs> Everybody needs to do at least that at the end of some sort of, I, I imagine, six episode show. Um, so they, they, they've made it nice enough for us and more importantly, all of you uh, to attend. Uh, if you haven't yet got a ticket, what are you doing? They've done it up for us. Um, you head to myticket.co.uk. That's myticket.co.uk. Uh, you'll see us everywhere. We're usually on the front page. If they've taken us off, that shows that none of you have bought tickets. Uh, myticket.co.uk. Um, tickets are £24.75. It includes fees. It includes fees. That's why it's such a random number. £24.75. Or you can just Google Goals Allowed Podcast Festival. Uh, as well. Um, now, if you bought a ticket for the cancelled December show, then that is still valid. So if you can come, we'll see you there. You've already bought your ticket. If you now cannot make it, you'll get a refund from where you bought your ticket eventually. But why would you want to do that? We'll just keep the money. Thanks. So come and see us on Wednesday, the 20th of July. It's going to be a very, very special evening for us. Uh, hopefully it'll involve you too. So do join us then. And uh, now the football on today's podcast is Hot Takes and Takeaways Volume 6. The Premier League season is over, so now we can pronounce. Coming up, all the takes too hot for anyone else, and the takeaways nobody else has noticed. Uh, We'll also be revealing the SPMPLPL winner to all those who lost enough interest not to check themselves. Um, So that is to come. You can email the show at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Talking of the SPMPLPL, a quick note from Buffalo John Wood, not the one in Huntington Beach. Dear all, he says, once again, the SPM PLPL wasn't the only set piece menu affiliated competition to be decided. There was the second year of the SPM FPL League. Here is the top five in the Fantasy Premier League. In fifth place, Alistair Plays Fantasy. Not the best name. Managed by Alistair Pierce. You say that, but it's 
it's to the point. It, it, it makes it clear what's going on. I like it. Or he was simultaneously playing Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> and and actually, if he's uh, if he's that good, he doesn't need a fancy name because he finished second last season. Another top five finish for him. Thank you yeah, to John for finding all this. So you don't need a good name if you're that good. Meanwhile, fourth place, Pjanic at the Isco. Okay, yeah, it's, I mean, that that joke has been done several times. Well, maybe say. Neil Vincent made it each and every time. Uh, fourth mm. place for him. Third place, Fried Chicken, managed by Harsh Janney. Second place, Tear and Share, with the, the Newcastle player. As in Fabian, yes. Yes, managed by Alistair Brookman. And first place, and a big congratulations to Bayern Munich, managed by Patrick Moon. Finishing with an overall rank of 4,706 out of the more than 9 million players this season all the best john not from huntington beach ps after nearly having a nervous breakdown watch liverpool at anfield on sunday i'm looking forward to your hot takes and takeaways to put it all into some well-balanced perspective (laughs) unlikely john Uh, so that's john wood Uh, congratulations and thank you to all those who played the spm fpl Uh, robbie walls not wells nor the bear correspondent harms has got in touch about spm 268 last week dear dirty mike and the boys hi guys was lovely to have you in my podcast schedule again last week. Your absence has been keenly felt over the last few months. Just had a quick point to make on last week's pod regarding benefiting big clubs. As the season came to an end this weekend, for me, the finalised table illustrated just how big of a gulf there is between the top six and the rest. In what was Manchester United's worst ever Premier League season, they finished sixth. Yes, only by the skin of their teeth, but still sixth. In a dire, dismal and disastrous campaign, the Red Devils still managed to secure a European berth, albeit with the club and its supporters likely to sneer at their place in just the Europa League next season. For me, as a United fan, it was a weekly case of questioning just how the club was still as high as they are slash were in the table, despite seemingly dropping points at will. Maybe it points to the competitiveness among the sides below that no one could truly mount a proper push to unsettle the big six, although it is no less worrying that even in such a drought season United could be rewarded with a place in Europe's second tier competition an achievement that most of the sides below would have been delighted with with their sheer weight of numbers and wealth United and their fellow rivals are almost shielded from failure of course West Ham and Leicester have disrupted the usual hierarchy in recent seasons yet they simply don't have the ability to sustain it year after year United even seemingly appointed Ralph Rangnick just to try and allow them to drop out of Europe completely yet even as terrible as his reign was it still ended with the club in sick the safety nets are worryingly growing ever greater for these elite clubs kind regards uh, Robbie Wall well, Robbie, well done on preempting our conversation this week. So we will return to some of those topics in just a moment. Leander Winden has uh, something that takes us back to pre-hiatus, uh, when for the umpteenth time, the Rory K. Smith moniker uh, was discussed on this podcast, having been previously dis- discussed on other podcasts. Dear founding members of the Dead Podcasters Society, about three quarters of the way into SBM 267, having listened to Rory expand on his intense dislike of all poetry and not just limericks, and then hearing that his ESPN slash former Times counterpart Gab Marcotti used to inexplicably refer to him as Rory K. Smith, something clicked. Unlike Rory, I appreciate poetry and try to read and listen to poets as much as I can to compensate for my not having studied literature since I took my GCSEs. As good fortune would have it, the podcast I listened to a few hours before SPM 267 was the excellent On Being, hosted by Krista Tippett. In this episode, her guest was none other than the former poet laureate of the United States, Tracy K. Smith. Now, I can already picture Roy's eyes rolling, but hear me out. Gab Marcotti was raised in the United States and is, we can assume, due to his prestige as a journalist, reasonably well-read in literature. Therefore, it must be somewhat likely that Tracy K. Smith is a familiar name to him. We may also entertain the possibility that Rory voiced his distaste for poetry in one of his conversations with Mr. Marcotti during their time working together, which then begs the question, did the latter instantly make a connection between the names of the famous American poet and his poetry-despising colleague? Did he decide to take advantage and from then on call Rory by a name for which the underlying joke would ever remain a mystery to Rory. I only provide a humble hypothesis. I'll leave it up to you gents to decide for yourselves. Best wishes, Leander Winden. I don't remember discussing poetry in any form with Gab. (laughs) So I don't think it's that, but I do like the theory. I would also question whether Gab is well read. He is without question an incredibly sophisticated man, but at the same time he does exclusively wear Philadelphia Eagles leisure wear. (laughs) So... (laughs) So you make your own minds up. Uh, and talking of poetry, um, usefully, our own Limerica laureate, Bryn Griffiths. No. No, come oh, on. God. Now's uh, the time to make yourself a cup of tea if you want one. Come on, they're five lines long. You won't have time. Got in touch during the hiatus with another effort um, that happened to chime with the content of our mini pod on the ownership at Stanford Bridge that you may well remember uh, we released uh, during the hiatus. 
And here it is. There once was a Russian owner of Chelsea who post-USSR collapse became super wealthy. With the goal to sports wash, he laundered his dosh. Now his assets are owned by you and me. Uh, once again, Bryn displaying a very loose grasp of how limericks work. <laughs> yeah, it's a good try. Rory was shaking his head midway through the second line of that. No, do you know and what? It fell away so badly that that was premature. You really should have saved your disdain for the conclusion. Do you know what? This is this is this is very much kind of. It's either like a teacher with a difficult but potentially gifted pupil, or what I think is referred to in the biz- in business jargon as the <laughs> sandwich. But the, the the first line, and for Bryn, this is quite an achievement. The first line was okay. There was there once, once a, was Russian a Russian owner, owner of Chelsea. Of Chelsea. It's, mm, well, he's got it. There once was a Russian owner of Chelsea is an okay start to a limerick. But then, then the, it's just the second line was so long. Post <laughs> USSR that, that collapse became entire... super wealthy. I mean, that's just yeah. I mean, I can't. I don't want to. I don't want to grade him. But you know, F. It's not great, is it? Yeah. I wonder. But the first line, good work. Stick with the first line, Bryn. Just work on that. Workshop it. Twenty percent good. Um, I wonder if Bryn is trolling us. Uh, let's leave it at that. Uh, correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. So here comes our sixth annual Hot Takes and Takeaways, a glorious recurring feature that needs no introduction and therefore no extra work on my part. Apart from to say that this is the episode that ties a little bow around the Premier League season in a way that no trophy lift or fancy parade could do, particularly now that those trophy lifts and parades offer me no personal financial benefit. Um, we hinted at one of the themes we intend to talk about on uh, last week's pod, what appears to be a growing competitive imbalance and whether we should be concerned. So let's all break out our inner Miguel Delaney and begin Set Piece Menu's sixth annual hot takes and takeaways. Do we think it's been a good season? I feel like it's been quite a good season. It has been a good season. Yeah, even even if you view it myopically, it's been an excellent season. Because not my... just here, in other places as well. Yeah. We can come on to that. But it's been a really good Premier League season. My my worry for the Premier League was that well my, my worry until January pre hiatus, which I think is how everybody now judges time, was that <laughs> um was that City were gonna walk it by twenty points or whatever and it was gonna be fairly no, I mean not this is really difficult. It's really hard to explain this to City fans. And it, and that's not because they're City fans, it's because they're football fans. I think fans of any club would, would have this, a, a similar kind of comprehension deficit. But what's good for Man City isn't necessarily good for football. So it is, and I've had this, this conversation countless times, like Man City can simultaneously be amazing and boring. That they're, 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 Those two things aren't difficult to hold in your head at any one time. That they're, um, How amazing they are kind of makes them a bit boring because a lot of their games I was trying to think actually on the way to the Etihad on Sunday like which have been the most dramatic games in City's season and obviously there's the two the, the two Atletico games were dramatic the two Real Madrid games were dramatic the the late win at Arsenal on New Year's Day I think where they, they they were really bad for an hour and then came from behind to win and then obviously the game against Villa on Sunday was incredibly dramatic but most City games you don't oh Spurs Spurs at home that they lost three two. Most City games, if they win, are not dramatic because City is so much better than their opponents that that they all kind of blend into one. And that's to City's credit, but it also doesn't thrill the neutral or the the outside observer if you don't believe in the concept of, of neutrality, which they but, don't care about. Obviously, they are there yeah. to thrill their own fans. So if they're f- five nil up after twenty minutes, they consider that to be a uh, a better outcome clearly than yeah. winning three two with three goals in five minutes. And you then get to the you then get to the well, so there's, there's also, and this is really important, there's, there's a difference in terms of what, the, what the, the staff and the players are trying to do, which is win all games 5-0. What the fans want to see, which is their team winning every game, preferably 5-0. Eight, 8, 10 preferably, <laughs> I think fans are. I think fans in, intuitively understand that, that a 3-2 win feels better than a 5-0 win for some weird reason, but generally they want to see their team win. And it also, cl- just quick, is what your definition of thrilling is, because if something yeah. is to be expected, which is regular, comfortable victories at home, then that isn't necessarily thrilling yeah, to me. Yeah, exactly. Those gallivanting to four or five nil before the game has reached anything like its conclusion does not excite me in the way that what? the drama of a, a, a late turnaround to win 3-2 does. Yes, but having having watched almost every Manchester City home game for a 10-year stretch, 
I can I can tell you that that their their joy tended to be in not just winning three nil, winning five nil, or being four nil up and winning eight nil. Like it, literally a numbers game, attempting to score as many even record breaking numbers, and each game started. I imagine I'm not a City fan, so I, I can't I can't say that I can instinctively emotionally feel the same as them. But it, the the feeling was that if they were able to rack up as many goals as possible on each and every occasion, that was satisfying. It was almost like 3-0 felt dull, 5 was okay, 6 and 7 actually gave you something to talk about. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of looking at it, that I think for, for a long time now, 3-0, especially at home, has been the standard city straw. That's, that's almost what they're starting from. It's like par, and then anything beyond that is is under par in in golf terms or over par in the misunderstanding way that everyone else talks about it. The, but the okay, golf, golf experts, Rory. <laughs> no, no, but it's, that's just, that's just one of those things that we, we get wrong all the time. People say, oh, it's an under par performance. What you mean? It was really good. Yeah, what, exactly. What's wrong with you? Yeah. The, um, the, um, <laughs> I might hate the sport, but at least I can, I can handle the vernacular. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I understand the mathematical logic. I find this really interesting in city that I think you do have, a, a, a different set of priorities for all the stakeholders within Manchester City that the players and the staff want to win every game 5-0 and that's exactly what they should do they don't care about how much they entertain the neutral their job is to win football matches not a problem the fans want to see as you say lots and lots of goals and have a sort of belief I think that all fans share which is that if their team wins every game 5-0 they should receive nothing but praise and everyone should enjoy it because they assume in fact, all fans assume this isn't a City thing that they're that what's good for their team is good for football. And if their team are the best at football, then everyone should admire them. And the club who want to win hearts and minds, and you can, that, that, you can attribute that to whatever reason you want to tell yourself the Manchester City project is about, I won't go into mine. But the club want to win that kind of affection and that, that admiration and those trophies. And you've seen it a lot in the last few weeks with Guardiola and I think it's been it's gone underreported how strange it has been that Guardiola has gone on yeah. and on about Liverpool. It's really odd. It will partly be because he's been asked those questions, mm. but he's only been asked those questions because he brought it up. Yeah, or he, he has he has brought it into the mainstream, if you like. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the the dark web has been talking about it, and now he's put it on the internet. Yeah, exactly. So. It, the way it works is that if a manager says something, you know, if, if I don't know, Sean Dyche says that he likes kebabs, then th for the next few weeks, lots of journalists will say, hey, Sean, have you had a kebab? And it'll be, suddenly it'll, you'll think, oh, Sean Dyche is obsessed with kebabs. And there is a little bit of that at play with Pep and, and Liverpool. But he did bring it up initially and he kept on going. He didn't have to say all, all the stuff, you know, it was only probably three or four times about the whole country wanting Liverpool to win, which, and I say this as a broad admirer of Pep Guardiola, is a fundamental misreading both of football history, British social dynamics, and reality as it exists. Like, it is, it is full-on... It's just wrong. Like, I can't tell Pep Guardiola anything about tactics or how to make a football team play well, but I'm pretty sure I can tell him about how, how the kind of British tribal landscape of football works, and it's definitely not that everyone wants Liverpool to win. That but is also, not what happens. And, and we'll, we'll come on to that, because this is, this is a huge part, I think, of what we're going to talk about today. Did he do it because... He knew the effect that he would it would have. How how much agency did he have? Not in just the saying that everybody wants Liverpool to win, but the the reasons behind that. Understanding that it is very much what his fan base thinks. He might not need to subscribe to it whatsoever, but if he knows that that's what is bubbling under the surface, well, it's not really under the surface, but it's under the surface in terms of discussions during press conferences, and he understands that the way that the club might be, you know, briefing again, under the surface, about this kind of anti-City agenda. All of that comes there. Is it, is it so in his mind now that it just came out naturally and instinctively because that's what he thinks? Or does he understand that in giving voice to it in that kind of arena, bringing the conversation into the mainstream, he's being a little bit mischievous in allowing the discourse to take place? It's the little grenade, walk away. He's, he's, he's talking to his players as much as anybody. It's that thing of it's, it's them against us, which seems to yeah. remain for managers that that way, once all other lines of motivation have been extinguished, that you can give them that final shunt. It's also in that way of applying a bit of pressure elsewhere, of saying to Liverpool, 
come on, you're the people's favourites. You know, you've got to work mm. harder to, to get the better of the evil empire that is my Manchester City. He's, he's, he's playing along with the narrative that he thinks best helps his players and best destabilises Liverpool. You can't criticise him for that. But if he wants to win hearts and minds and admiration as the Manchester City manager, then he needs to go and manage Manchester City in the late 90s and early noughties. Yeah. If he wants to win trophies as the Manchester City manager, he's best off where he is right now. But he can't have both. The, the, that is, I think, something that is really interesting about the City project as a whole, not just Guardiola. That, that there is, a th- I think, and it's the same for PSG, and it will eventually be the same for Newcastle. There is a bit of a mis- misunderstanding about how football works, I think, that, that if you win everything, people don't like you. People, there's, I mean, there was a, City fans talk about this constant that, that little cabal of City fans who, who won't let the you know the the merest slight to their club pass, and increasingly, and this is where I think it's slightly different to everybody else, won't let anybody praise any other team mm-hmm. because it's it's immediately addressed as well. You, you, why aren't you saying this about City? Um, it you know, it they, is a cabal, yes, but it but it is pervasive, and yeah. it and, and little strands of it are becoming accepted wisdom among a much much larger group. Yeah, and also I think a lot of it has been absorbed and regurgitated by the club, which is which is unusual, I would say. Um, it's, it, you get, you get sense... affection. You get affection when you win, when that win is either improbable or comes at the end of a barren spell. Yep. And you can dial it straight down to, for example, when Liverpool finally won the Premier League title, there was some affection that, you know, near, near three decades worth of suffering, that there was an under... I think there, I think there I don't was... Know I if, think, I, no, some would say there's a little bit too much affection. I mean, the BBC did a documentary about Liverpool winning the league. When have they ever done a documentary about any other team winning the league, especially when it's teams that have won it more than once? So that's, I, that, that, that's, that's the balance that of the true. coverage. Yeah, that is true. I, I yeah. suppose my point is there was, there was a greater acceptance that, oh, fair play, well done to Liverpool when they won the yeah. Premier League than they did when they beat Tottenham in the Champions League final. Yeah, they've had plenty of European success in recent seasons. So, so that didn't elevate them in a way that that long-awaited Premier League title did. Yeah. And in the same way that if they had gone on to successfully defend the Premier League title, then there wouldn't have been anything like the same outpouring of admiration. I don't know whether whether the Guardiola thing. So, a couple of, when it's when it as it was rumbling on, a couple of people said to me that they thought it might be a distraction technique. Um, there might that there was a sense that maybe he was doing it so that to turn the conversation to an area that he wanted it to be in rather than something else. What what that something else might be was never specified. Um, I think it's possible he was, as Steve says, he was talking to his players as much as anything. One of the things I've got to say, and the as a kind of ardent devotee of Guardiola, one of the things that kind of disappointed me about him in England is is how easily he tries to reach for that kind of persecution complex siege mentality thing it feels a little bit like Guardiola maybe should be above that to be perfectly honest it, it this isn't really it's probably not a fair thing to say about him but I don't really think that the great philosopher king of football should be sitting you know Aristotle didn't sit on his like dace in in Athens saying oh no one likes me they're all big fans of Plato do you know what I mean it's a bit it's a little bit it feels like it's just slightly tawdry for Guardiola <laughs> to be doing it I understand why and I I find it odd that it works, but it does seem to have an effect. Um, Didn't Aristotle teach Plato? Or was it the yeah, other way around? Other way around. Other way around. Okay. Plato taught Aristotle. Um, the but it's just that image of I don't know, like like, like Zeno sitting there. Don't know oh, you're all you, you're all Stoics. You're all on the side of the Stoics. Like it's not you. You don't need to do that. You're, I just you're wanted Pep a second Guardiola. metaphor. That's why <laughs> you're Pep Guardiola, and and you've you've. But he's a, he's a product of his team. environment, isn't he? He is a product of the environment. He cannot, and, and, and as much as, yes, he might sit atop any kind of dice and philosophise about life in general, he's still going to be infected by his environment. And well, his this environment is, so, is going into the city every day, yeah. being surrounded by not only the staff, the fans to a certain degree, even displaced slightly, but also those who advise him. Th- those those people, well, it's Manel Estiate, or if it's Rodolfo Barre, or if it's Manuel Leo, that they are people who might not necessarily have that restraint that you would expect of Pep Guardiola, and and they're having a conversation every morning over breakfast about stuff that might pervade his sense you, about what's going on. You see, my theory is that, that it's two things meeting. One is um, one is that sense that City do have of everyone likes Liverpool, we don't get enough credit. Um, 
and you can debate how much that's true and how much it's not and the reasons for it. I think we've talked about them before. And the other thing is I do wonder whether Guardiola personally feels that he doesn't get quite as much admiration as he ought to. And I think that the the iconography that he has um, indulged in since the title win mm. and the way that City won the title is really instructive because that was the most human City have been this season. That was a way, that game, although it is, exa- is the exact opposite of what any of the fans will have wanted and what Guard- certainly what Guardiola and the club will have wanted. It was a very stressful afternoon. That was a much better way of winning popular support than beating Watford 8-0. That, no one cares if you beat Watford 8-0. It, it looks a little bit like bullying. If you seem to be throwing it all away and then you stir, you find something deep within yourself to, to come back, you look human, you look like a normal football team and people can identify with that. Yeah. Um, but the, I do wonder whether Guardiola feels that there isn't quite enough veneration of Pep Guardiola and the uh, the iconography of the cigar there's obviously the flag of him with the cigar that's in the I think the south stand at Man City and there's been lots of prominent cigars he I think he walked out on the parade with one in his hand or in his mouth at the parade on Monday it just feels like maybe he's trying to just g up a little bit more hang on I'm you know I'm pretty great and you people should all be saying I'm great and I wonder how much he resents the fact that Mm. Kind of he because of the money at City, because of the all of the other stuff that Manchester City represent, and they do represent whether whether the fans want to accept it or not. That it's you can't look at that team and say what you said about Guardiola at Barcelona, which is he has taken a homegrown core of players and created the best team in the world. And look, he had Lionel Messi, and that's a bit of an advantage. But that's what happened at Barca. There's Pique, Xavi, Iniesta, Jordi Alba, who was a Barca youth product who'd gone away and come back again. He took that team and turned it into the best in the world. You can't say that about City because he has spent an he has spent an awful lot of money. And the nature of football is that at some point people will say, "You've spent an awful lot of money." And I wonder whether maybe on a personal level, yeah. Guardiola maybe resents that because he knows he knows that he's worked sufficiently hard, and and who knows how hard compared to anybody else. But he has worked sufficiently hard to be able to to not only win the league four times in five years, but to defeat uh, as he bangs on about a lot. And this is part of the whole conversation. Um, at, at a foe that he, the likes of which he has never faced before. Yeah, and I th- think if if what Rory says is true, and I think it is about him, Guardiola, feeling as though he doesn't get the credit he deserves, then he's not listening carefully enough. Mm. I mean, he's been single-handedly given the credit and been held responsible for the raising in standards of Premier League football over the yeah. last five or six seasons. He's even been given a nod and a wink towards the fact that England are playing better since he arrived in English football, that technically he's raised standards to such a level that England look like a functioning, <laughs> well-organised football team. And that even that this is trickling, I know it's become a bit of a joke, you know, like Rochdale scorer, a goal passing the ball from one end to the football, at one, end, one end of the field to the other, and, and somebody tweets out a picture to say, try telling me Pep Guardiola hasn't influenced English football all the way down through the pyramid. So it, it's even become a bit of a gag. It's become so wide, such a widely held view that it's starting to go full circle. And, and it, I just sense, again, agree with Rory, that if he reads the room a little bit better, there are other ways, there are other things he can say that would elicit admiration he could focus on on how what a challenge it is to to keep all of these incredibly well-paid footballers happy to make sure that they get the game time that they deserve he could talk about how often Jack Grealish is knocking on his door asking for a place in the starting lineup there are there are so many things that he is doing with Manchester City that are admirable that he doesn't need to focus on this sort of defensive approach about Mm. why, why why is all the credit being directed elsewhere because I think that leads us on to the idea that, do you know what? We spoke after Manchester City's 100-point season about whether or not, you know, they were going to start ruining English football. And whilst this idea that Liverpool are sort of the paupers mixing it with the elite has been a little bit oversold, Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool have done a phenomenal job in three of the last four seasons in terms of challenging Manchester City, getting close to them, beating them once and giving us a title race worthy of the name. Because if you look at how far adrift some of the teams that have finished third, in, in those three of the last four seasons, the, the teams that finished third were 18 points, 15 points, and 25 points off the top two 
if Liverpool had been competing at that sort of median level, if you like, City would have been running away with it. So that is another explanation as to why maybe Guardiola doesn't feel he's getting the credit he deserves because people are focusing more on the fact that despite the resources available to them, they have been pushed a little bit more than they might otherwise have been. That's the grand irony of Sunday. The two things he wants are not compatible. That if you want credit, you win 3-2. If you want people to question whether you're ruining football, you consistently win 5-0. Mm. You, you might play better. City were dreadful on Sunday. They were really bad for 75 minutes. And look, they looked absolutely panicked, especially after the second goal, understandably. Um, if you want people to admire how, how, how good you are, you need to be present, they need to be presented with a contrast so on Sunday, that contrast was a really well-organised Aston Villa team for 76 minutes. Mm. Who, I mean, they shut City down. They don't think Robin Olsen really made a save. They looked really good. If you present them with something that isn't, a, isn't an effective contrast, City beating Watford 8-0, they're not going to know... How, they're not going to be able to appreciate how good you are. And I think that, that applies across the, the league season as a whole, that without Liverpool, Manchester City, A, would be much more unpopular than they are, and B, it would be much harder to appreciate the scale of their achievement that... That we know we can see how good Liverpool are. Because Liverpool are so much better than everybody else in the league. That, in a way, and I think Guardiola has has acknowledged and well, maybe more than acknowledged that. I think he's kind of been keen to, quite keen to stress it. If you have a team as good as Liverpool being beaten, then imagine how good the team that's, that's beating them are, even if it's only by a point. Yeah. They are that kind of highlights the scale of, of City's achievement. The, the, they've been in a fight, Rory. Yeah, they've been in a and, meaningful fight that. Chelsea and Manchester United have not been able to consistently mm. take a, take part in, and without and, without Liverpool, you're you're right. We'd have just had a procession in. The would, last would have been, would have been five years, seasons. yeah. But, but that, but the, like, that that thing about Liverpool is is the reason he bangs on about it is because the two times that he has been close and towards the last you know seven eight ten games of the season, they've had to consistently match or or, or beat Liverpool's results. He feels that that is something that is worth praising because the only time that Liverpool won the league, City weren't really in it. Mm. So Liverpool won it in almost the exact boring way that we criticise Manchester City for winning it. So when it's been tight, they have risen to that challenge. And I think that he thinks that that, even alone, but I'm sure there's much more, um, is worthy of praise. And particularly because... He feels, I imagine, that there is a bit of a kind of a, a bottling narrative being constructed around the Champions League failures. Mm. And even at 2-0, I imagine that there were plenty of people on social media saying this is a bottle job. Literally, I'm sure you could find 100 tweets in a moment's notice after about you know 60 minutes or whatever it was that Coutinho scored. And so for his team to do that, that he feels shows the kind of character that he has spoken about and talks about them being legend and being eternals and things like that. But it, but it also allows the Premier League to think of the emotion and the drama of the last day, providing those slightly cynical watchers. This is this is the channeling the Miguel stuff. Those those slightly cynical watchers of the Premier League and particularly the team winning the Premier League for the out of the last five years. And the reasons behind, or partly the reasons behind that, it, it allows everything to wash away, I use that phrase advisedly, so that you think about the drama of the Premier League, the excitement of the Premier League, trumping everything. And I, and I think this is what we're talking about. We're talking about competitive imbalance. Yeah. We need to also think about the balance of our conflicting emotions when it comes to a moment like that. Literally a huge kind of emotional blanket being put over all those concerns that we might have had for nine and a half out of the ten months. But this is the thing about the Premier League, that it has an amazing chameleonic ability that I, that I think funny enough, the, the, the other major leagues around Europe don't really have. And I'm not a big believer in the idea there's some massive te- technical gap between England and Spain and Germany and, and even Italy. I think the teams are roughly... The team that's 10th in England is probably roughly as good as the team that's 10th in Italy. Maybe a little bit stronger, but not by a huge amount. Uh, there's, there'll be comparative strengths and weaknesses. The German, you know, a German team that's 10th, I don't know who finished 10th in the Bundesliga, but the team that finished 10th in the Bundesliga might be able to physically overpower the team that finished 10th in Spain. But the team well, that, Eintracht Frankfurt have won yeah. the Europa League, finishing 11th, 11th in the Bundesliga. Yeah. 
Which is a slightly false position because they, they jacked the Bundesliga in from about April but, onwards. But, but still, still it, it would be hard to imagine the team finishing 11th in the Premier League going all the way in Europe. Yeah, exactly. Position. So you, you can make these various cases, but I do think what the Premier League has is an ability to adapt to its surroundings. So when you have like the bid four for a long time, none of those teams were that, were, none of them were particularly great in, in, in a European sense. They weren't kind of, Man United were the best team in Europe for a couple of years. Chelsea obviously got to a couple of Champions League finals, but none of them were kind of epoch-defining. Mm. I think that's probably fair to say. Um, but the Premier League made a virtue of the fact that there was this four-way t- fight, theoretical four-way fight for the title. What you have now is is a title race f- that that relies on those two teams being way better than everybody else. Does that title race isn't nearly as much fun if it mm. ends with one team on seventy nine and another team on seventy eight? The the glory, what you sell, the product you're selling is these are two of the best teams in in, in English history. Watch them duke it out, yeah. and you get that incredible denouement, that incredible drama of the last it, the season goes to the last fifteen minutes. You know, with ten minutes to go of the season, Liverpool need a goal to be champions. Um, and it doesn't work out like that, just City mount the steering comeback. But to reach that point, you need a season where there has been dreadful competitive imbalance. And to be honest, that applies to City and to Liverpool, because although Liverpool are, compared to City, restricted in terms of resources and stuff, because City's pockets are bottomless. So even though Liverpool are incredibly rich, City are infinitely richer, because they, they, they have as much money as they need to have. That isn't true of Liverpool. But compared Liverpool to everybody have spent else, their money. Liverpool, like Manchester City, have spent their money incredibly astutely, and that will be the thing. That will be the greatest challenge yes. for them to maintain that. We've talked in the past about this idea of how difficult it is has become in the Premier League to put together maybe more than two successive title-winning worthy campaigns. You know, Manchester City, brilliant. They've won four of the last five. That is an incredible achievement. It'll be interesting to see whether they can go on and, and finally win three on the spin because that has, in, in many ways, in the Premier League era, that is the benchmark that was set by, by Manchester United. Yeah. And that Liverpool have actually, in three of the last four seasons, put together title-winning campaigns mm-hmm. but only got the trophy once. And whether they can keep going and keep going under those circumstances will be absolutely fascinating. Last, last time they missed out in these circumstances, they blitzed the beginning of the the subsequent season and and essentially won the league at that point because they were so motivated by how close they had come and Jurgen Klopp managed to kind of regenerate that sense of hunger to the to the yeah. point of of Manchester City being out of it pretty early on so it yet yeah, like you say Steve it'd be really interesting to see if Jurgen Klopp can do that again engender that same sort of feeling in his team next season the, the difficulty with Liverpool and Steve alludes to this is that the difficulty that Liverpool faces that yes both Liverpool and City for the last 5 years pretty much have spent their money incredibly wisely Liverpool can't afford a mistake. City can. City yeah. had a hundred million pound. Jack Grealish hasn't been a mistake, but they left a hundred million pound player on the bench when they needed yeah. three goals. And you could argue to, that, that that is to Pep Guardiola's credit that he's not reliant on the money because the money was spent on Jack Grealish, but the, the player that he brought on, and this for, for, myriad, for myriad reasons, he, he needed somebody like Gundogan to come on, break into the penalty area late, and perhaps he didn't need Jack Grealish, and Jack Grealish was hundred million pounds, and, and Gundogan was only twenty. But but the point is, is that he he brought on a player that he didn't need to have bought. If you see what I mean, he yeah, didn't yeah, need yeah. to. He didn't need the one hundred million pounds to get yeah. his team out of a hole or win the title for and his th- team. But it, it helped maybe that he had loads of sixty million pound players on on the pitch anyway. Yeah. That's the that's the difference. But the, the, City could make a mistake. City, I think, will probably sign three or four players this summer. One one or two of those could just not work out. It's possible. It hasn't happened recently. I'm certain it won't be Erling Haaland, but. You know, one or two of those could prove to be ill-judged or they might not settle or whatever, and it would not derail City. They would be able to swallow the loss and move on. If that happens to Liverpool, if, if they don't sign Aurelien Schumann or uh, Ibrahim Sangare or whoever it might be, and it doesn't work out, then Liverpool have an issue. And that's the difference, that the, the fine margins. And I do wonder, I don't want to be too negative about it, but I do wonder whether... No, there's no question that Liverpool have kind of helped normalise what City have done in the last few years and the dominance of Manchester City by keeping roughly keeping up with them. I do wonder whether it might be useful for English football to address the competitive imbalance, which applies not just to City and the, the rest of the bid sits, but to the bid sits and everybody else, and to the Premier League and the Championship, and also to the Premier League and all of the other leagues in Europe. It might be useful for maybe Man United or Arsenal to experience what Liverpool have experienced for a little bit, that you can do everything right 
and still find that there is a club that's ahead of you. Yeah. And that imbalance thing, I think, was, was beautifully typified. The imbalance in the Premier League in general was beautifully typified by what happened in that Manchester City-Aston Villa game. Because Villa played brilliantly for 76 minutes, got their tactics absolutely spot on against arguably the best team in the world. Yet, in order to execute that, they had to run themselves into the ground. And Steven Gerrard eventually had to make a change, taking off Coutinho, that weakened his team. He didn't have a Coutinho alternative or a player of the same level that did a slightly different job to replace him with. And the minute he had to make that decision, City were presented with an opportunity. Mm. And that is an example of the huge gulf between what's happening at the very top and further down, that even if you can come up with a game plan against a Manchester City, against a Liverpool, that frustrates, infuriates, gives you a chance, you still might not get it over the line because at some point in the closing stages of that game, you're going to have to stick or twist. And often, whichever decision you make will prove to be the wrong one. And, and this brings in the email that we had earlier from, from Robbie Walls because about Manchester United mm. making enough mistakes and still not being punished for it because of the strength of their squad relatively yeah. to, to somebody like Aston Villa. And you, you mentioned, Rory, about the fact that City and Liverpool have spent their money incredibly wisely. And given that City's pockets are indeed bottomless, the fact that they have done so is, again, to, to their credit because they know that they could spend more. And then you take into that equation, Manchester United, who probably have spent more in an unwise fashion, mm. not necessarily more overall, but more unwisely. But they, they still have this safety net of never falling really outside of the bottom six, at the top six. Now, they might have finished seventh if, if West Ham had beaten Brighton. So it was close. But there is the sense, isn't there, that, that there is enough of a ring fence around the, these top six that they they fail only relatively. And so if Manchester United put themselves in a situation where they were spending that money that they have a little bit more wisely, then they won't certainly won't be failing relatively. In fact, they will be succeeding relative to what they have done previously over the last few years. And they'll find themselves, hopefully, for them contending. Well, so I have a, a, a query with United, which is that I'm not sure that the sort of success that is attainable to them is the same as what their fans consider success so I think to a lot of Man United fans you know I'm sure if Ten Hard finishes second or third next year then then that will be seen as progress and maybe second or third the, ne- the year after that will be seen as okay we're, we're consistently up there again this is fine this is going really well Man United have two or three generations of fans who were bred on the idea that the natural order of things is Man United finishing top of Leeds with a big trophy and challenging in Europe I'm not sure that's actually possible on a regular basis. Man United will win a title in the next... They've been 10 years without a lead now, nine years without a lead now. Um, I think it's probably safe to assume they'll go 10. Um, I'm sure they won't make it 20. I'm sure they will, win, they will win a lead in the next decade. But I don't think there is a world now, with, with football's landscape as it is, in which Manchester United re- return to their perch where they become the, the sort of default winner of the English title in the same way that Juventus are in um, in Italy or Bayern Munich are in Germany, that that, that honour has now passed to Manchester City and you would assume that Newcastle at some point will will start to emerge as a as a viable alternative. And I think that puts United, and on a, on a lo- lower level, Everton, in a really difficult position because I, I think the problem that Lampard has at Everton is, all right, he's, he's taken them to safety, he's done really well to... to make sure to steer the ship into into safe harbour but what Everton fans think their team should be doing Mm. and what Everton realistically can do are two very different things and I think that's the that's another thing that will in the next five five or ten years become clear that there is there is a knock-on effect of of the of the new type of money in football which which is best exemplified in, in England by City at the moment and will be by Newcastle, but also by PSG in, in France and in the European context, that that old elite... And people don't, see, people don't seem to kind of put the two and two together, but the reason that you looked at the Super League, the reason that, that the old clubs thought that they needed something, needed some sort of seismic change, is because there is a knock-on effect to what the, the new money clubs do. And 
that might be good for the new money clubs and it's certainly good for their fans because who doesn't want to win 10 league titles in a row but or 4 in 5 or 8 in 10 or whatever PSG have done but the knock-on effect is that there is a there is a compulsion for those big clubs there is a public demand that those big clubs try and rival the new money and they can't afford to do it and sometimes like Liverpool they 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 find a way to compete that's healthy and makes the most of their resources but more often than not they panic and they try and do whatever they can to keep up and they get it wrong and Barcelona are the best example of that and that puts those clubs in genuine danger so we saw at the, at the weekend the the La Liga statement in response to Kylian Mbappe signing a new deal at PSG which was in in innumerable ways beyond weird it was incredibly strange that yeah. the president of a league should basically be saying we want more competitive imbalance in our league and, and less in yours yeah so can and, we please and- and advocating on behalf of just one of its clubs just one club. <laughs> instead of all of them. The, and it was very much a sour grapes, toys out the pram sort of moment. But Tebas is right that, that, that it is dangerous. The, the inflationary effect, the spiralling effect that you will get um, from from those deals is really dangerous. I think Juventus in Italy offer a really good example of how a previously incredibly dominant club falling away is not to the detriment of the league in the same way that Manchester United falling away in the Premier League hasn't damaged the Premier League product at all. For the second season running, Juventus have finished fourth in Italy after their nine successive seasons of winning the title. They've had fewer points this season than they did last season, but it has been overwhelmingly the most engaging Serie A season in a long time with Milan and Inter going right down to the wire on the final day. A fascinating jostle for for position in terms of the the Europa League and and the Europa Conference League behind the top four. And generally get the sense that the overall product has been better this season as a consequence of Juventus not being able to mount a sustained challenge for the title than it was at any stage during their near decade-long period of dominance where occasionally Roma and Napoli got close to going toe-to-toe with them but ultimately fell away towards the very conclusion. And that's why the La Liga thing strikes me as being so incredibly strange is that why they're not looking elsewhere and seeing, well, actually, do you know what? So what if others are able to suddenly compete a little bit more domestically with Real Madrid and Barcelona? That might not be a bad thing in terms of the overall product and and how people engage with it. It's just really confusing. And 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 Rory, you're right about the the whole idea of it throw, throwing toys out the pram and Javier Tabas doing what many might have expected. But also, yeah, this this strange situation where you want to in, increase the competitive balance or in, increase the problems in your own league to stop another league increasing its own similar problems when you do look at Italy, they don't have so many of those problems because you don't you don't have this this imbalance not only competitively as has been proved over the last couple of years but also you don't have this imbalance in terms of a number of clubs one in in France two in Spain three or four in 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 England having so much more money as well and the funny thing about Real Madrid, Barcelona, Manchester United, some of these clubs who are interested in the, in the European Super League for competitive reasons to try and restore yeah. some sort of balance. They, without the European Super League, might think that the only way to do that is to become one of the new money clubs. So you either, to beat them, you join them and you, you increase the issue about sports washing that has been, of course, much discussed since Newcastle, um, but longer than that because of PSG and Manchester City. And also, if you don't do that, you have to eradicate it amongst those clubs so that they come back to the pack. And with all the problems with the European Super League, one of the things that was behind it, and I imagine would have been thought as being logical by those people who thought about it, was that if these fans are saying that they want us to be that, then we have to do this or we have to sell our club to a group of people who these fans say that they hate the other club being owned by. It's a vicious circle that that they are all now, these elite clubs, finding it incredibly difficult to escape from the influence of. I can kind of see from Javier Tabas's point of view that the, the overall concern is that maybe PSG and Manchester City will become so overwhelmingly dominant that they'll start annexing off the, the Champions League in the way that they have done their, their domestic leagues. 
But it, it's worth remem- remembering that when you do have these, these hugely dominant clubs, there are a finite number of points available in any season. And when you've got a Manchester City and currently a Liverpool accumulating so many, that is to the detriment of the spread of competitive balance through the rest of the division. Once again, we've come a long way short of requiring 40 points to survive in the Premier League. Just once now in the last 19 years has 40 points actually been the bar that you've needed to clear to stay in the top flight. The average since West Ham went down with 42 nearly two decades ago has been 35.2. So you're now talking about 36 points being enough to guarantee your top flight status in England. And and that means that the level down at the bottom, even though the money has increased there as well, has, has diminished. Well, it's, it's time to talk about a league that displays no competitive imbalance, but just as many interesting statistical points based on percentages, which Stephen has just provided us with, because it is time to reveal the results of this season's SPMPLPL. And we start with this email from Tom Reutemann. My son Aaron is 11 years old and is a huge Liverpool fan like myself. What an incredible season in the league it has been for him. He started it full of hope and optimism. Things seemed to be going incredibly well as the months passed and he really thought it would actually happen. Imagine his disappointment when, at the very last sickening moment, the season ended in bitter failure, just when it seemed that victory was coming. The winner finishing just one measly point ahead of his beloved team in what is generally globally accepted as the most prestigious league in the world, the SPM PLPL. Yes, my primary school child finished second, and he has been top many times this season too. I myself came a reasonably creditable 60th, All right, Tom, I thought it was about your son. I obviously need to catch up with his generation's modern cutting-edge research methods, so she'll be watching lots of TikToks and looking up player stats on FIFA. That is Tom Reutemann. Well done, Aaron. And spoiler alert, everyone else. Uh, We have been furnished with all the exciting details by the SPMPLPL curator, Best Man Billy, who... I should add, we'll be attending the live show on Wednesday, the 20th of July. So buy your tickets, if only to discover the face behind the endless spreadsheets. Uh, Here are the results from Billy. Um, We already know who is second. So in third place, in slightly anticlimactic fashion, uh, is Ivan G with Lalana Lamas, uh, who finished with 361 points. A reminder that you uh, submitted, no doubt, right on the deadline because you'd forgotten up until that point your 20 premier league teams in the placings you predicted that they would finish and now that we have come to the end of the premier league season it has been decreed whether you are right with your predictions or not hence the spm premier league predictions league ivan g got 361 points it's 20 points if you were spot on all the way down uh, to one if you were 19 away uh, Aaron Reutemann, who we've heard of, um, is footfungus54. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but he was also on 361 points. The tiebreaker, of course, is how many spot-on teams you get. And if you get the same spot-on teams, how many one away you got. And the winner. And congratulations to Matt Lishman. Plenty more Lish in FC uh, with... 362 points. Again, as um, slightly anticlimactically revealed, uh, it was just a point in it at the very top of the final leaderboard. Here is the plenty more Lish in FC, Matt Lishman effort. He thought Chelsea were going to win the league, but it's everything else that he got much more right. There were seven bang on for Matt, just uh, one away were seven teams as well. That also put him top of the bingo leaderboard, which meant that he was the most correct So congratulations to you, Matt. You had Watford, Crystal Palace and Norwich in your bottom three, which is strange because seven of the top 10 teams, but not the winner, guessed the bottom three in the right order. And we're receiving the five bonus points uh, that we gift to those people who managed to get that. A total of 33 players, in fact, guessed the bottom three in the right order. No one guessed the top four in the right order. Nobody, not one player. And uh, your most accurate prediction overall was, can anybody guess? Norwich to finish bottom. 62.9% of you uh, managed to guess that. Then came City to finish first, 36.2% got that right. And then Watford to finish 19th, 
uh, was the third best guess. Uh, compared to average predictions, you see Billy's been working very hard on these spreadsheets. Top three outliers, Everton, hugely displaced from what the, uh, the consensus was. Leeds as well, both finishing a lot lower than you expected. And Newcastle, uh, some on average five places higher than you thought uh, that they would eventually finish. That will, uh, that will be the takeover then. Um, in fact... On Everton and Leeds, nobody, not one single person, predicted Everton would finish 16th. And only 0.2% of you uh, predicted that Leeds would finish 17th. And then the final thing to bring you, um, after all that statistical gold dust, is the SPM team leaderboard. Um, which we shall mention very briefly, because in fourth Let's place... rattle through this. Yes, rattle. 429th place, <laughs> Stephen Wyatt. I've had a shocker. Uh, on the same amount of points, 334, but at 13 places higher in 416th, Hugh Ferris. Chinch didn't even enter his name. He only entered his uh, team twice. So AFC Woodford, managed by AFC Woodford, was 311th with 338 points. And sailing into the top 75 in 75th place... <laughs> is Rory Smith, John Inverdale, Caledonian Thistle with 350 points. And I refer you, uh, Rory, to the fact that the winner only had 362 points. And I would say pretty darn good effort uh, by you. Can you explain your sudden ability to get SPMPLPL sudden, somewhere within some sort of ballpark of success? Not really, no, because I, I saw a tweet saying I was doing really well a few weeks ago, as I think we discussed. And looked at my table and it's, it was dreadful. I think I had Chelsea to win the league. I think I had... I don't know, Manchester United to be relegated or something. It was all nonsense. <laughs> I don't really understand. I would say that it's it's testament to a low-quality year. This is very much Celta Vigo qualifying for the Champions League. That is my that is my takeaway from this. It's a low-quality year in SPM, PLPL. And that's why I've been able to look adequate. Rory, if it's any consolation, not only did I not have Norwich bottom of the table like pretty Ridiculous. much everybody else. <laughs> I didn't even have them in the bottom three. That's how badly I have predicted this season. Uh, if it makes you feel any better, uh, Chelsea finishing first, Rory, was guessed by 47.6% yeah, of people. Top. Yeah, yeah. I think I did too. It was after that. I'm assuming it was after they won the Champions League against Manchester City and we all thought that they would they would put that into the league. And it was the second most popular prediction of all of them, behind that Norwich one. The thing is, that if you, a lot of people will have submitted their teams um, after that Lukaku performance against Arsenal when it looked like he was going to kind of take the lead by storm and Chelsea were now the complete team. And that made you think, yeah, all right, Chelsea are going to contend, they're going to compete. But the thing about a lead season is that it's really long. And I always think that when you look back on the, the sort of 10-month span, it's amazing to think about the things that we used to think were true. Like it's genuinely incredible that we thought Lukaku would complete Chelsea, that we thought Arsenal would probably, you know, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang would probably not play for Barcelona, that, you know, we thought that people might object if a nation-state took over a football team. You know, that all these, all these old ideas that we had, these old ideals that just seem so old-fashioned ten months later. And Aurelie um, was not even in existence at no, that I, point. And here I, she is contributing to her, I think, first podcast. Yeah, it's a long-standing Smith tradition that the children contribute. Uh, Aurelie <laughs> is... Uh, is currently under my care and she said look dad what I want to do you know she's four months four months today in fact um she said look dad what I want to do is I want to broadcast that's what she likes doing I'm hoping it'll help her sleep I suspect it won't well when she's a broadcasting superstar th this clip will become viral <laughs> Before they were famous, or indeed could talk. So congratulations to Matt Lishman. You are our SPM PLPL uh, winner. Contributor via email on a couple of occasions in the past, uh, I do believe, on account of my memory and also ability to search the emails fairly quickly. Uh, so congratulations, Matt Lishman. If you want a blue plaque outside um, your front door, you're, you're very welcome to put it there. We will obviously not be paying. And in terms of your incredibly storied gift that many people would have been fighting for, um, it still doesn't exist. Is there um, not a copy of Kicking Back? Oh, Kicking Back to. by Nade Manure, available at all good bookshops and some terrible ones, RRP, £20. Did, did you almost just say Kicking Back by Nade Manure, available at all good butchers? <laughs> well, I don't care who stocks it. There might, there might be. Somebody told me there was some sort of really crazy algorithm uh, which responds well to multiple sales in multiple locations. So if you're an outlying butchers somewhere, maybe where Manchester City aren't a big deal, 
I don't know, let's say the West Country, um, please buy the book because um, Waterstones might go, oh, okay, we'll stock a few more of them. Uh, keep your correspondence and your book sales uh, coming, please. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com is where the correspondence goes to. Uh, also, keep buying your tickets, please. Mytickets.co.uk for our live show on Wednesday, the 20th of July. That's Wednesday, the 20th of July at 21 Soho in London. Very special night planned. I think when we start planning it um, please subscribe share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule thank you to Rory and Stephen and to you all for listening we'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed I would have thought Orly might have got a thank you thank you let's let's do it Orly this is called an edit and then somebody who works very hard i.e. me will make the edit afterwards here we go thank you to Rory Stephen and Orly and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece many of you to enjoy very soon indeed. So she's not only wanting to be a broadcaster, also a diva and a very demanding one. So she's following the footsteps of both her father and her father. Yes, I was going to say Guardiola yeah. in terms and of getting, getting credit for, you know, the kind of <laughs> contribution that most people could have made anyway. Exactly. She, she, she just wants her due. That's all. She just wants what she deserves. There is an, a, a hashtag anti orally agenda. There are times when there's a bit of an anti-orally agenda in the house. <laughs> and her immediate response is, as you might expect, one of fury. Is Edward Whittington Smith effectively the British press in that analogy? <laughs> uh, no, to be fair, Ed's quite nice to her. The, um, he sort of deeply resents her presence, but um, generally is quite nice. I'm conscious that listening to a child cry is really bad audio. And I'm now eating. There really is no reason to stick around. <laughs>